0: Good morning and welcome to a special episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard right here every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Today, we're speaking to the candidates for the position of 7th District School Board Representative. We have Gary Broderick, Cheryl Burke, who is the Interim School Board member in the 7th District, and Bryce Robertson. Stay tuned. We hope our interviews help you make your decision, 7th District residents. All right. Hi. Today we have with us Gary Broderick, who is running for school board in the 7th District.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome. Welcome. Um, we're happy to have you.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to be here.
0: Well, could you give us a brief introduction of yourself, your background, and how sure. you came to be here?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So I am somebody who has been a community and labor union organizer for the past 12 years, and focused on public education specifically over the past six years and um, you know I think we're at a moment in Richmond where we're suffering from starvation policies and I think our school board has been too complicit and I think that there's an opportunity to bring a community organizing um, mentality to the school board and really take on some of the fights that we need to have to make sure we have high quality public education in Richmond.
2: Actually, I have a really quick follow up question that was unplanned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, obviously, Virginia, we don't have a lot of unions, mm-hmm. as in none. none. Um, but so, can you just kind of explain briefly what is a, a labor union organizer and kind of what does that work mean?
1: Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, well, so just to to say real quick, so Virginia's governed for private sector workers. Virginia's governed by the same laws as workers in any other state. The National Labor Relations Act. But for um, public sector workers, those laws are decided at the state level, so public sector workers in Virginia don't have the right to collectively bargain, the legal right to collectively bargain. Um, And in general, we see better public education outcomes in places where uh, teachers have labor unions because then they're able to kind of advocate for themselves and, and the young people make the, the more sustainable jobs. So I did labor union organizing as a hotel worker. I was actually working for the Hyatt or sometimes the Radisson and what it meant was that you build an organization with your coworkers, and so um, it's not just your boss who's setting the workplace policy. You and your coworkers workers are like, look, any one of us as an individual is dispensable, but together, this company can't make money without us. And so if we're willing to be united, then we can negotiate from an a, um, even footing. And we can say, hey, this policy makes sense, this policy doesn't. Um, you're making millions and millions of dollars. We should have, have, have health care. Um, and so it was a process of everything from getting racist managers fired to fighting to defend our pension to knocking on doors and having hard conversations with coworkers about why they should stand up for themselves.
3: So, I'm going to hit you with the the hard question first. Sweet. Okay. So, you kind of partly answered already, but um, how do you feel you can adequately represent a neighborhood that you just moved into, being Mm -hmm. that you moved from the county, I think, just recently. Previous to that, you were outside of Virginia for a while. Sure, yeah. Doing a lot of the things that you just told us. How do you feel like you can adequately do that?
1: Sure. So, I, I appreciate the question. I think that from my perspective, I would not be willing to be appointed to anything. But I'm running for an election, right? So mm-hmm. it's actually seven district voters will decide if I'm the person who best represents their interests and their will. Um, and I think I want to make the case to seven district voters. I think I have a unique perspective. I think I have a track record of taking on some of these issues. And so I actually would not be com- uncom- I would not be comfortable if someone was appointing me to a position of power to represent the district. But I think you know, we're served by having democracy, it means that the ultimate choice will rest with seven district residents. And that allows me to come in, I think, in a principled way and make a case.
3: All right, part two to that. Some of the criticism, and each candidate will have a section of this. Part of the criticism that has gone around um, concerning you or has been connected to your past activism, connected to a board that you served on or a committee that you served on, or it was concerning uh, anti-gentrification Okay. There was some there was some drama, <laughs> there was some drama associated with you. Supposedly said the N word, mm-hmm. and you defended yourself. Can You give us some detail on that because there's not a whole lot out there about it, but people are talking about it.
1: Sure. So I I mean I think that um, I was a part of founding a multiracial organization in Point Breeze, which is a neighborhood of South Philly that had been um, majority African American since the Great Migration, and it was downtown, and so um, developers were pushing for development to happen at a really quick pace and pushing people out, mm-hmm. and you know, we I think did something unique, which was we built an organization that had both long-term African American residents and newer white residents, and we said that actually, we'll all benefit from development that happens as a result of um, people being in the lead, not kind of um, developers, and we can create policy that prevents economic displacement. Like that, it's not magic. You can create the policy that prevents it from happening, and so that was a threat to um, one of the most racist and egregious developers in Philadelphia. And so there was a number of ways that he sought to discredit me. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you if you if you see what happened in Philadelphia, it wasn't so much me that came to defend myself, right? Because I wasn't going to engage it. It was mm-hmm. other um, members of the Point Breeze organizing committee, and that, and particularly African American members of the community who came and said, "We don't buy this."
3: Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Thank you for that explanation.
1: Yeah, of course.
3: So how, will, how do you believe RPS can and should address the high suspension rate that disproportionately affects minorities here in Richmond?
1: So I, I think the main, I think there's a few things. I think the main thing that we need to do is um, fight for funding and get more adults in the building. And I think that suspension is essentially used as a short-term tactic by um, even good teachers Because, you know, if you have 25 students, three of them are acting up and um, you don't have the support staff to support you in that. And, you know, and then you don't have necessarily as developed as a racial justice conscious as we would want You, you use suspension. But the reality is that if we have enough adults in the building, there's a lot more options that are created and there's a lot more ways we can serve all students. But I think that in addition to that, I think we need to... Well, I guess if there's if there's going to be other questions around kind of school or prison pipeline stuff, I can I can hold off because I think that's my answer on the specific suspension one.
2: If you want to keep going, yeah, go forward with that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think because I think I think suspensions is um, one way we talk about it, and I and I think it's the you know it it can be a thing that parents and teachers end up on the opposite sides of right, and you can imagine why. And that's why I think it's so important that we bring teachers and parents together and say, no, we actually we need more adults in the building, and if we get more adults in the building then we can you kind of unite the interests of, of parents and teachers. I think the other big problem, right, and, you know, Virginia toggles between first and third in the nation in terms of how many recommendations are made from our schools to the juvenile justice system, and that's not something we should be proud of. And MLK and Armstrong, both schools in the 7th District, lead Richmond, disproportionately in, in Richmond, are where some of those recommendations are being made. And I think that, again, I think that there's you know, no substitute for the need for funding, particularly through progressive taxation, which is a way we can get funding for public education that doesn't put public education in competition with other public services that our Mm -hmm. folks need. Also though, I think we need to implement restorative justice practices. And when I say implement restorative justice practices, I mean actually like fund them, like not give a teacher like one training and then say, here, you're gonna do this other thing on top of all the things that you're already doing. I mean, actually, bringing restorative justice staff into the buildings, and yes, training teachers on how they can work with that, but not having to be something that teachers are now like another unfunded mandate. I mean, actually, substantive, resourced restorative justice programs. And then finally, I think that we need to enter into a renegotiation with the Richmond Police Department about the criteria under which they can make an arrest. Inside the school? Inside the school. And I think we need to make sure that young people are a part of those negotiations. Particularly, young people have been affected by Richmond um, police being in the schools. You know, part of what we have is Richmond police enforcing school policy. And that's not, you're not, you know, Richmond police should not be involved when a law has not been broken. But we've so much starved our schools that the police department is being used to enforce school policy, which is terrible and inappropriate and not a way for us to run schools. And so I think we need to actually have real substantive negotiations where young people are at the table, we put significant limits on the basis under which RPD can make arrests when they're in the schools.
2: Something that we talk a lot, and you kind of started speaking about it in your previous question, is, you know, we talk a lot about, I think, teachers and students and advocacy for teachers and students. But obviously, they aren't the only stakeholders in this, and they aren't the only thing that I think school board members probably should advocate for. As a board member, how do you view your broad advocacy role, but especially making sure that you're advocating for parents and also things that are beyond board control. What does advocacy look like with you as a school board member?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. Um, so I, I think from my perspective, and, and in some ways this is the, one of the fundamental arguments of my campaign, is that this is not a time to elect somebody who's gonna view their power as narrowly conceived as governing power. This is somebody, a time to elect um, people who are trying to build political power um, and I think that so, you know, when it comes to funding, one of the things that I think is really critical is if the school board goes through a needs-based budget process, makes a commitment to really put forward the needs publicly and say this is how much it's going to cost, this is what we need, um, that makes it a lot harder for other elected officials to um, not come up with that money. If the school board does that behind closed doors privately, it's, it takes the pressure off of elected officials. But in addition to that, I think, you know, the, the school board, I think I'm running on a campaign that says progressive taxation is important, that says we should be raising the corporate tax rate. I think if we have school board um, advocating for these types of positions, we can change the political landscape and make it possible. Um, I absolutely agree that the school board should see parents as a core constituent. Um, one of the things I, I organized with parents um, at Lincoln Muse Apartments, um, Jesse, your neck of the woods who had, because of budget cuts, lost um, bus service, right? And so, mm-hmm. you essentially had a group of parents who went to, get their kids went to Ginter Park Elementary. Previously, they had had bus service. And now what was happening was, they were watching their kids almost get hit by cars as they now walk to school. And so, when it rained, they kept them home. And the principal was like, hey, we're having the problem with attendance. And it's like, yeah, we are, but it's actually a systemic problem. It's not just about these parents not wanting to send their kids. And so...
2: And that part of North Avenue is a very dangerous part of North that, Avenue. Mm-hmm. It's like a blind turn at an elementary school.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that that's right. And I, and I think that... Um, so I, I, I say that to say, um, in terms of what I see is the advocacy role, I think it's a time to elect leaders who are seeing themselves as a part of a broad effort to advocate for, for needs as well as being responsible with the governing power. And I absolutely agree that yes teachers yes students yes parents and also yes support staff yes bus drivers yes cafeteria attendants i mean one of the things that we just saw is you shifted the the school t- start time and the number of bus drivers had to quit because they're getting paid so low that they need a second job mm-hmm. and then you change their schedule and make it harder for them to actually get to their second job and then we leave we lose a lot of bus drivers and i don't know if you guys remember but the start of the school year was kind of a cluster um, because we had lost so many bus drivers. Mm-hmm. So I think I think absolutely I think um, schools should be community hubs, and that means kind of part of the you know building blocks of democracy in our city. And that means yes, particularly to teachers, parents, and students, but all the staff and the whole community.
3: What do you think the role of public private partnership is in funding schools?
1: I think ideally there would be no role in public private partnership because the the very premise of a public-private partnership is is the undermining of the principle of one person, one vote, right? So if um, me and you both vote for this person because they support these policies, um, but then an entity that has enough resources can come in and we need the resources, and so then they're in a good negotiating position. And then, you know, a handful of rich people have more say over any uh, schools or any public institution than we do. And so I think that I really believe in democracy. I really believe we need to fund our government and have real democratic government. And I think if we do that, it can actually solve a lot of our problems. And I think it can actually be a way we can have really high quality public education. And so one of the ways this comes up now is, um, you know, we know that Mr. Cameras is raising lots of private dollars. And that, that, may very well be a good thing. We certainly need the resources. But I think that if you are a public servant and we're paying you $250,000 a year, then the time you spend raising private dollars, that's not your money to do whatever you want with, right? There still needs to be democratic governance over that money. The school board still needs to decide what agreements we enter into, what terms we accept, what terms we don't accept. And so I think we're, we're in a moment where if we have some forward-thinking businesses that are willing to make contributions, um, then that's great. But that can't be a way to subvert the democratic governance of our schools or we'll very quickly end up with schools that serve some people but not everybody.
3: Which is what we have. Yeah.
2: So we have about two minutes left. Oh, no. So um, <laughs> we wanna give you kind of everybody the time to just really articulate what is your vision for the seventh district and why should people vote for you as a candidate?
1: Yeah. So my My vision is thriving schools where um, when there's a high school basketball game, the community comes together and celebrates that. When there's an art show at the elementary school, the community is there. And, yeah, having that be a part of a vibrant community where transportation, public transportation serves everybody, right? What What we just had in the East End was an effort to attract more choice riders, which I think is a decent policy goal but it was at the expense of people who are really reliant on those services. I don't think it has to be like that. I think when it comes to public education, when it comes to neighborhood development, when it comes to public transportation, we could implement a policy regime that really everybody benefits. I think it takes the courage to tell corporations they need to pay their fair share of taxes so kind of middle-class families and working-class families aren't pitted against each other so black folks and white folks aren't pitted against each other. And so I want parents to feel confident that their kid's going to learn to read if they send their kid to a Richmond Public School. I want parents to feel confident that their kid's not going to end up locked up. I mean, knocking doors is one of the kind of sacred parts of running a campaign like this, and I talked to a woman two days ago who he was a um, senior at Armstrong, and now he's locked up for 15 years. When we're locking up 17-year-olds, that's our f- problem. That's, that's something that we, that's a failure of us right? Like, you know, if you're 35 and you commit a crime, that's on you. But when we're locking up 17-year-olds, 15 years, that's on us. And so I think we've been beat down into hopelessness. And I hope that I'm running a campaign that says, no, let's be hopeful. Let's be united. Let's think big. Um, Let's look to these amazing um, teacher-led movements in West Virginia and Oklahoma. Let's emulate that. Um, let's bring parents and teachers in dialogue and, yes, have some of the hard conversations that they need to have, but also figure out how we can build that unity. Let's talk about how we put racial justice at the center of everything we do, Um, and let's um, build a public school system that we can all feel proud of.
0: Uh, How can people get to know you, Gary? Uh, You got any events coming up, or
1: what tools are you using to reach voters? Um, Yeah, thanks for the question. So um, first, um, please check out my website, garyasbrother.com. We have a very active Facebook and um, Instagram. I'm also um, on Twitter. Um, you can just Google Gary Broderick for those things. Um, I also have a Medium page um, that has some of our campaign statements and some of my writing. And then um, I'm, I'm excited on Trin- at uh, on October 9th at 6 o'clock at Trinity Baptist Church. We're having the second forum, which I think will be a good opportunity for people to see who is running, what our respective visions are. And then I'm really excited. Um, Sabrosa Bakery on October 25th is hosting our campaign for an event: the the future of public education with Gary Broderick. That's at Sabrosa Bakery, 7 p.m. Um, yeah, and I I I look forward to the conversations we're having. I'm really grateful to be here. All right,
0: thank, thank you so you. much for joining right us in. today. Really appreciate it, and uh, and good luck in your race. Thank you. Yeah.
1: You are listening to
0: RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio.
3: You can change the weather, you can help the way you look. You can pick your family or the ending to the book. But you
1: She
0: bold, you to Welcome, Interim 7th District School Board member, Cheryl Burke. Hello. Thanks for being with us today. Hey. Thank you for having me. Uh, could you give us a brief description of yourself, uh, how you got here?
4: All right. My name is Cheryl Lewis Burke, Cheryl Burke. I've been in Richmond Public Schools for the last 38 years as a teacher, a teacher specialist, and the principal of Shimorazo Elementary School in the 7th District for 19 years. I am a fourth generation educator, so I knew since childhood that I wanted to teach. That that was inevitable, because I was imitating my parents as well. And I've always watched them while growing up, always doing for others. My home is Powhatan County, our home was always open to others to help and guide and motivate and be a rock. So I too wanted that opportunity. After having served as principal and retiring in 2014 at Shimarazo Elementary School, where when we first went when I first went there in 1996, we were one of the lowest-performing schools in the state of Virginia. Before leaving, we were fully accredited, we were um, excelling, we were maintaining what the expectations were across the board for educational excellence as close as it could possibly be, and then some. We are the only international baccalaureate elementary school in the metro area. So I retired in 2014 and when the opportunity um, came up to have an interim, I was asked and I stated, why not? I was volunteering in the school system for the last four years in the seventh district and Southside, anyway, weekly. So um, I filled in on October 17th, I was sworn in, appointed by the board unanimously. And after getting on the board, I was devastated by some of the circumstances of which I saw, because I've seen it better. So why not be a part of the solution? Because I know what to do, how to do it, and look forward to working together as a team to make it happen.
2: So this actually kind of ties into your, your background as a principal and administrator. So this is the tough question that we're starting them off early, right? <laughs> uh, so all the questions have a theme for all of our candidates really about things that people in the district have questions on and it's kind of an opportunity to respond. You have a reputation for being a strong disciplinarian during your tenure as principal in the administrative side of things. So how as a board member have you and will you continue to balance that experience with also being able to equitably advocate for parents who might also need that voice as a board member?
4: Let me share this with you. Um, I believe in relationships that's one of the rich and public schools put a lot of money out there to have me trained. Um, I was trained for three years at Yale University in the school development program. Um, trained also the University of Michigan for the high Scope preschool program. And with the school development program out of Yale, of which we sent parents to Yale, teachers to Yale, um, volunteers and myself, and as well as their coming to us to be trained, there must be a relationship piece in place. Oftentimes we want parents to come to us, come to us. We want to tell them what needs to be done. But they are their children's first teacher. Surely they know their own children. So what I did as principal, I would um, ride the school buses every day, get off the buses, bus that I was on, walk the neighborhood, meet people, and that developed a sense of trust. So the first year or so, I just worked on developing relationships. In regards to continuing that, parents contact me every day, and one advantage of being retired in this position is that I'm able to respond. I ask that they give me at least 24 hours. Sometimes they want to hear from me quicker, so I, I try to do that. But um, between the emails, the knock on the doors, everybody knows where I live. We've lived in the same house on Broad Street for the last 26 years, so it's no secret where <laughs> the old principal of Shimarazo lives and has lived over the years, um, but so far as keeping that relationship in place, of course I use social media and just being open, but I do have the time now to be accessible in a different manner. As a board member, that's a part of my responsibility. It makes the job a little bit easier in the end when people trust you, so that is still work to be done. and I'm helping other schools now in my district, but I'm being mindful of my position as a board member because that's quite different than being a principal because our responsibility as a board member, my responsibility is to govern and to make policies as well as to monitor and um, we hire the superintendent, so we're responsible for his his, um, progress as well. But when I go into schools, which I make myself accessible, I want all the children to know who I am. I don't want them to see me as a visitor, but no, because I'm a part of the school, so I tell them, one little boy, I think it was at Bellevue, when I would tell the children, I said, "I work for you. I work for you," and one little boy said, "I'm the boss of you." I said, "Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh. yes." So that's a part of. So I'm working with the schools because basically, most of us that were in the seventh district and across the system, those principals have gone on. There are very few left, but we we made that happen with connecting with so many different pockets of neighborhoods that we have with different needs. So to answer that question shortly, yes, I look
3: forward to making myself accessible. How do you believe RPS board can and should address the high suspension rate that disproportionately affects minorities in Richmond? I understand that question well. And
4: to be sincere, that whole piece needs to be revamped. That's my suggestion as a member of the board. In the end, it's the will of the board. And looking at that data also is is a big number, large number of African Americans, Mm -hmm. particularly males, and also children with special needs. So one strategy that, and this comes under the Comer-Ziegler model out of Yale, is um, having people in place within your building, be it counselors, be it behavior agencies. I had about eight agencies. I think my number was over the top in terms of having people there to address situations when they come in. So when Johnny walks in the door in the morning and the teacher's very busy getting his or her classroom straight, Johnny, go have a seat, start your lesson. But something happened to Johnny last night before coming to school. Something happened to Johnny that morning while getting on the bus. It may have been a confrontation on the bus. It may have been something in the neighborhood. It may have been um, seeing things that children should not see at that age. We have to do a better job, not just the school system, but across the board of protecting our children. So having um, ample guidance counselors in place, not doing a lot of paperwork, but truly being there for the children. I know it is a paper on I don't want to say exactly before whom, of lessening right now is one counselor per, I think, 500 children in elementary level. Wow. That's, that's That's ridiculous. Mm. And that person is caught up so much with paperwork. And also having ample mental health agencies in place before the trauma takes place. When you get that relationship with children and you know what's going on, and it's the same really with adults. Sometimes we as adults walk into situations having faced death or things just happening in your household, just to have that um, mental health or counseling or um, I think that would address the piece first before looking at the paper, the booklet score, and it lists that if a child hits another child, you automatically have consequences. Yes, you should have consequences, but there are different levels of consequences. And oftentimes when children act out, they may be bored Anything could be going on, but just getting that relationship in place to understand and meet the child. And that is that is a lot, but it needs to be addressed.
2: So we talk a lot, I think, in education conversations, really about the different stakeholders uh, in schools. And a lot of the focus is really, in a lot of ways, rightfully so, on teachers. But as a board member, as we kind of mentioned and talked about, you're not just advocating for teachers. You're advocating for so many stakeholders. And also those things that are beyond what's in the purview of school board, i.e. funding. So how do you see a board member as able to advocate for all of those different constituents
4: equitably? That's my strength. That's my strength. When I was at Ginter Park Elementary as the teacher specialist, one of the churches in the area paid for me to um, belong belong to an organization to be trained to know how to communicate and facilitate opportunities for not just the parents, but also your churches, your organizations. Everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to be a part of the solution. And what I've learned over the years through, through that training as well is that um, you meet people where they are, but you also let them know your needs. Because oftentimes people come to the table with needs in place that they think because of what they've read or what they've observed, but they may not know the whole picture. So number one, is so important to have in place. When I went to we only had... One business partner, and that was a bank that no longer exists. When I left, I left them with over 300 partners. Knock on doors, just like I'm doing right now for campaigning. I I couldn't wait on, If I knew what, I knew what the needs were, so I had to go out there and make things happen. So far as covering what they have in mind, you have to bring people to the table. One of the strategies, strategies that I utilize, and I'm working on this now as well, I brought all the churches together. Some had never been on Marshall Street. Um, and not to preach religion, but a lot of persons in church have the opportunities that want to. They should be in the communities helping us and helping our children. Um, I don't want to name any businesses, but many businesses put in thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to make things happen within our school. So the main thing is sitting down at the table together, first separately, then bringing everybody together. And as a board member, I could, I can still do that, and I'm, I am doing that is trying to help schools to get some support. Just as we had our bathroom blitz, that went very well of bringing people together just to see first of all what's going on and to make things happen to improve rather than just talking about it or observing it and it needed to be done. So what would I do as a board member? Number one, bring people together, find out what they'd like to do but also letting them know what our needs are then come together with a plan and move forward. But you must keep in touch with those people regularly. I learned that over the years. You just can't invite people to the table and then said, okay, go do it and let's go. There has
3: to be an ongoing communication piece in place. So feeding right into that, the next question is related. Um, what do you think the role of public-private partnerships is in funding schools? Public-private
4: partnership in funding schools. Well, first of all, as we know, in the state of Virginia, a little bit different, as you all know, that our funding comes from the city council and the state mainly. Uh, we, do, we do get some funds from federal government, but our main resource for funding, that's the city and the general assembly. So far as the private sector is concerned, um, I think it's necessary. Public, yes, that's our taxpayers' dollars. That's however the budget is done. The unfortunate part in the state of Virginia is that we can't tax on our own or don't have any, any. That's, that's, that's unfortunate. We have to go to the city to get the money, but that's just the way it is, and that's the state law, so we have to follow that. So far as private sector is concerned, yes, there should be some responsibility on that part. When Governor Warner was the governor, that's one, um, he was great when he had the PASS initiative in place, where he... Put in an initiative, which was passed, PASS, to encourage businesses to partner with schools. Some did it financially. Some businesses manpower. That helps as well. It doesn't always have to be the dollars. Oftentimes, you have companies that have the resources. We used to have a truckload to come to the front door to bring school supplies really supplies from their offices, but things that we could utilize. So there should be not always does it have to be dollars, and some companies are bigger than others, but there should be a, in the end, the plan is that the children that are currently in school should come out of high school ready to go to college or ready to work. So if there's already a relationship in place, yeah, if there's already, already a relationship in place, that should be so much easier because the companies have an opportunity to mold those children, and I'm working on that right now. We have a couple of new businesses that's come on, coming to the city of Richmond and they're baffled to hear just in casual, I won't tell you where we were. We were at a restaurant. Casual um, conversation when people ask, well, you know, what do you do, where are you? And um, just to share with them our needs and that's the big picture. And by the time I finished, this gentleman gave us 400 backpacks all stuffed for one of the elementary schools in the city of Richmond. And now he's, his company is moving into Richmond, and we're talking about putting in place um, a program for our high schools. So since now the children have a free bus pass to go to any place they want, GRTC, mm-hmm. if they can go wherever, they'll have a place, they'll have transportation to get along Broad Street or South Side or whatever. To answer and your you pay question, the meals tax. Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> You're at a restaurant, so. Yeah. Yes, exactly, <laughs> and I do that often. So to answer your question, yes, the public, most definitely, it is public schools. Children have the right to be educated. Number two, private sector, yes, but be mindful that there are different levels and different means by which, but not any company should, should, should change his or her mind. And I was thinking about the past initiative. Let me go back to that, if I may. What one company did, they went through all their employees, big company here in the city of Richmond. They went down their list of the um, zip codes, and the majority of their zip codes was the Fulton area and the Churchill area, top of the hill area. And they just poured, and they were out in Henrico County, poured resources, technology, manpower. Um, they provided things for the teachers. It was, it was a great partnership, and that helped us to put our focus on the academic piece and not all those other little distractors, mentors. We've got two minutes
2: left. That's all. I'm here. Yeah. fun. But (laughs) can I come back? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So uh, just to kind of wrap things up, you know, what is your vision for the 7th District and why should people vote for you?
4: What is my vision? Remember what I said earlier about my my history, about where I first went, when I first went to Chimorazo? I get very upset when people talk in a negative manner about my children in the 7th District. My children in the 7th District, we have the haves and we have the have-nots. They all are just as brilliant as anyone, any place else, and then some. Why should people vote for me? Number one, I have the experience. Number two, I have the skills. Number three, I have proven what I can do as a person and as an educator. The next thing is the vision is there for excellence. I need to be a part of the solution. To come out of retirement to do this, I've been retired for four years, my heart is in it. I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about what? Children having the opportunity to be the best that they can be and then some. To have that vision, sometimes we have to walk people into what a vision is or what your mission is school the school system across the city not just not in Richmond, poverty is a is a um, big piece. We have a large pockets of poverty in the city of Richmond, particularly in the 7th district. We need to that needs to be addressed. Education is the best key to solve that problem of generational poverty. Mm-hmm. And until that is done we will continue to have the teenage pregnancies. We will continue to have the school drop out. We will continue to have the crime. Then when children come to school, there are one set of rules at home and with their peers, and the schools have been set up for middle class. So we have to teach our children to have eye contact. We have to teach our children how to articulate. And I am the person for the job to be able to do that. And I love working with children. I love working with children. So also, so far as my already serving on the board, I have been trained by the Virginia School Board Association. And also I've gone beyond the required training. So I'm off the ground running. New George Mason coming. Bathroom blitz. I've gone into every school, flushed every toilet, flushed every urinal, turned on every faucet, looking in every corner. Because your school setting is an extension of what you believe in. So I'm very pleased with what I see thus far. Now we need to just to add that rigor to the curriculum. Vote for me, and I promise I'll give it my best and then some, and I am retired semi now, but I have the time to do what needs to be done. And I'm looking forward to it. However it unfolds, I I, I do hope that I am, I think, I know that I am the woman for the job. How about that?
0: <laughs> yes, ma'am, thank you so much, Ms. Burke, for joining us today. Uh, before you go, uh, do you have any uh, events coming up where people can get to know you? Or what kind of tools are you using for uh, voters to get to know who you are if they don't already? Yes. Oh, that is so kind. There are a
4: lot of new people. And at well, one time, I could walk anywhere in Fulton, Union Hill through, and now walking more so than what I have in the last four years. Got a lot of new neighbors. <laughs> but they all know, you know, we after we talk, we, we connect and reconnect. Um, Cheryl Burke, R-V-A, at gmail.com. Cheryl, hashtag every child, hashtag Cheryl Burke R-V-A. Now I'm expressing and emphasizing R-V-A because there is another Cheryl Burke out there. Very Cheryl famous. Burke, the, yeah. Sure Cheryl Burke the dancer. Oh, you're not dancing mm-hmm. with the stars? Dancing with the stars. With the stars. <laughs> you know, that really works, Melissa, until they see me. i <laughs> <laughs> I have gone to hotels away from Richmond. It's like, is, is that really? And then when they look at me, like, oh, okay.
0: That's they're all the, waiting that at that's the that's door. <laughs> Also, <laughs> the cha-cha in here. How about
4: that? Now, I love to dance. I love to dance. My children, my students know that well. We would we have a great time celebrating. Also, there's a forum. There are several forums come up. But on my Facebook page as well, it's listed October the 9th at 8 p.m. There's a forum in Fulton at the Fulton Civic League Association at 8. All three candidates will be speaking. And um, just hook me up on social media. Check me out. And we're, I'm there every day and then some. But thank you all so much for the opportunity. Sincerely, I appreciate all that you all have done. And I hope I get a chance to come back again. Yes. And I do look forward to celebrating success for our children at the next level.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
2: Really
4: appreciate it.
0: Vote Democracy.
4: In your
0: hands. Well, welcome Bryce Robertson to Dirt's Municipal Mania.
5: Well, it's great to be here. I am um, really excited and, and, and just uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, you all do such great work, and I am just honored to have the opportunity to speak with you for a little bit.
0: Oh, thanks so much. It's nice to hear. Uh, so could you give us a brief introduction about yourself and how you got to this place?
5: Sure, absolutely. So I am a Richmond native. Richmond is my home. Um, I love this city. I uh, grew up here. I started out in Richmond Public Schools at Mary Scott Elementary. Didn't finish out at in Richmond Schools. but. Um, like many families, um, my own family made uh, a choice. Uh, they had to decide what they were going to do when my brother was born, whether they were going to continue to, to be here in Richmond or they want to, wanted to you know, do something different. And you know, ultimately, um, they did move out of the city. But you know, what that says is that we have a lot of work to do because our schools have consistently struggled with supporting the needs of our students, parents, and our families here, our educators as well. And one of the things that's important to me is education and education advocacy. I love all of the great things that are going on in the city, but I still see that our students, our young people, are victims of attending you know, old and dilapidated school buildings. Our teachers are victims of a lack of support. And our parents are victims of a school district that is still starved for the resources that it needs. And we don't have to be victims. We can be agents of change. And so as an education advocate, an attorney, and a product of this community, I'm ready to see some change. I think it's time to ignite change in Richmond's East End in the 7th District. And that's why I'm stepping out and running for school board.
0: What experience do you feel that you bring to the table that will allow you to effectively be able to set education policy?
5: Um, Thank you for that question. So as an attorney, an immigration attorney and a criminal lawyer, I believe that my experience is unique. It's a unique perspective because part of what I do is I represent young people who are in Richmond Public Schools for a number of different issues. And as part of that, I see some of the trauma and some of the issues and stress that they deal with on a daily basis. Things that you can't even imagine sometimes. You know, parents who aren't necessarily available in their lives at at the times when they need it because the parents are stressed out. Kids who are dealing with issues of substance abuse and at a young age and uniting families, keeping families here in the United States that's another stress, coupled with the fact that the school district still struggles with supporting them and their needs. I believe that my experience in, in seeing that, that it, those issues in real life brings a different set of, of tools and experience to the table that will help me to, better, to, to make better decisions when it comes to what's best for, for, for young people in the schools— And I recognize that in the 7th District in particular, one of our biggest problems is poverty and trauma. And how we deal with that in the schools is going to be crucial in lifting us up and moving us to the next stage or the next level when it comes to, you know, being a successful school district. I want to see us be more
3: supportive. Um, How do you believe RPS board can and should address the high suspension rate that plagues us here disproportionately with minorities?
5: You know, it is a serious issue, and it is something that is near and dear to me. What we have here in in Richmond um, under a civil uh, rights investigation and recognizing that black and minority students are four times more likely to be expelled, it's a problem. And like the Legal Aid Justice Center says, we can't use access to education as punishment. What we need to do is make sure that our disciplinary policies balance accountability with compassion to make sure that our, our teachers, our educators, have the flexibility to support the kids who need extra supports in the classroom and the flexibility to have a functioning classroom. I would like us to work on bringing restorative justice practices into the classroom, finding ways to create a better culture within our schools, because if young people understand the impacts of their actions within the context of community then we can stop the tide of some of these negative things that 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 uh, ends up causing more problems you can't just punish for punishing you have to help create an environment where they are understanding why there are problems here why it hurts to do certain things in within the community social learning you know emotional, um, sensitivity and, and compassion. So, I think that restorative justice practices in the school make sense. And so, apart from that, I would also suggest that we, you know, practice a whole child approach and, and, and be supportive of our programs that seek to have trauma-informed care in our schools. So, I'm a, a, a huge supporter of the New Child Savers Partnership. Um, the resiliency program, I like that. I see the, the success that that can have in the schools. So that is what I would say in terms of that. Um, we just need to be more compassionate and find ways to keep our students engaged in the academic process. It's not about expelling them and suspending them. It's about um, you know matching them up with tutors, um, finding ways to keep them a part of the academic system.
2: So we talk a lot in education um, conversations and advocacy, you know, about RPS board and uh-huh. th- their advocacy for teachers and students, especially. Right. Okay. Um, but as a board member, how do you view your adv- advocacy role also for parents, and then right. also beyond uh, things that are within school board control? So, for example, funding. So basically, how do you see yourself as a board member advocate? What does that look like?
5: Wonderful. So part of my role as a as a board as a school board member would to be, in essence, not only just a, a trustee of the school board, of, of the school's district and, and the policies and, the, and and what we have in place, but also to be a voice for the community. I believe that the school boards, the the decisions that I make should not reflect um, my own perspectives, but the perspectives of the community, the, the students and the parents and educators in my community. So. What does that look like? It means reaching out. I want to create a community engagement council to help an open, uh, open forum and, and, and that would allow for me to understand where we stand on some of these important issues because you know, there are many things that are coming up. We're looking at rezoning. We're looking at um, a lot of important concerns that will have a, a long-term impact. It also means to be responsive and, be com- and, and, and communicate and to be transparent. So when there are needs, I want to be accessible and I want to be available for my community. So if you reach out, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that something happens to so, to resolve a particular concern or issue. I am an advocate, that's what I do. It's my job, I'm a lawyer. And it gives me a unique and and
3: passion for making things happen for people. What do you think is the main role of public-private partnerships in funding schools?
5: Okay. So let me uh, preface that by saying that public, imp- pr- public-private partnerships, um, when I think of partnerships with the community, I'm not talking about uh, charter schools. I'm not supportive of them. I'm not supportive of vouchers. But what I do think we can do as a school district is reach out in our community, um, talk to our local businesses and find ways that the business community can help support and provide additional uh, resources that perhaps a school district cannot uh, provide on its own. We do have limited resources and we will fight for, for all the funding we possibly can have when the resources are um, seem tight, but we have a wealth of community resources, organizations, and and uh, a whole deck of cards that we could use to help provide services. We don't have nurses in all of our schools. What kind? What can we do to reach out in a community, find organizations um, that might be able to help us do that? In Indianapolis, they have a program that has the local um, Indiana University to to help step in and provide nurses and, and, and physical and mental health services within their public schools. Why can't we look at creating partnerships that would allow for us to do similar things? So I want to see us branch out, create better frameworks for mentorship and tutors, look at ways that we can expand partnerships to benefit every young person in Richmond Public Schools.
2: So we have a few minutes left here, but we want to give everyone the opportunity to kind of describe what is your vision for the seventh district, and then also why should people elect you?
5: Wonderful. So my vision is to have a school district that is both that is inclusive, accessible, and supportive. I want to see us, you know, one day make headlines as being a model community, a model school board, school district for our state, for our country. The 7th District is poised for so many opportunities. It is, while we have our challenges, that creates the space for us to be innovative. And innovation doesn't come from doing the same things that you've always been doing. It comes from challenging the status quo. Let's look at, at ways that we can shut down the school to prison pipeline. Let's look at ways that we can, you know, um, expand access to pre-K and preschool programs that have such benefits for young people over the long term. Let's look at the partnerships we can create. Let's let's expand our ELL and, and, and language, language learning so that's not barriers for, for, for education. And how can we better support our educators and give them the incentives that they the, the, the provide the support and incentives that they deserve as professionals there are so many things that we're not doing that were, that are basic that will help us to move forward moreover let's not celebrate mediocrity having clean bathrooms and 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 functioning uh, faucets and toilets those are things that should be expected in our school district we can't come we we should we should be in a place where that is just the expectation you look around our community and in in, in um, the counties, they have cutting edge technology that has a practical purpose. Let's make sure that we have the best technology that can help improve higher literacy rates in our schools. I see so many opportunities for us to, to leverage our strengths, come together and build bridges for student success and so that they can make themselves proud and to make us proud as a community. The students are our future and that's what I want to see. I want to see innovative programs. I want to see um, partnerships that help us to grow. I want us uh, as, as in, in strength and in, in, in closing the achievement gap that we have, you know. there's I want to see accreditation in all of our schools. In, in our community, um, only a handful of our schools uh, in the 7th District are accredited, and, and that's a problem. We can do better. Let's follow our strategic plan and give it some and, and and actually look at ways that we can actually measure it and understand ways that we can we can um, carry out those goals and that that vision that's there. It's a great framework for where we want to be, but let's actually put it in place and and utilize it.
0: All right. Well, Bryce Robertson, thank you for joining us today. Right. Uh, do you have any events coming up, or what tools are you using to get voters? Uh, to get the information to voters, and how can they get to know you? Uh,
5: thank you so much. So, what I would um, so we are online. We have our social media. Please go to www.votebricerobertson.com for more information about my perspectives and my platform. But please also check me out on social media on our Facebook page and our Twitter. Uh, would love for you to stay tuned to different events as they um, come up. Uh, You'll uh, have an opportunity to hear me give a full uh, perspective on where I see Richmond Public Schools' um, possibilities and and, and vision um, after the uh, Richmond Democratic Committee meeting on October 4th, which will be the next opportunity to hear me speak. Um, After their um, private meeting, they will have uh, an open opportunity for people to come and listen to candidates. So. Thank you so much again. Um, it has been a, a fantastic conversation with you all here. And um, I um, look forward to igniting some change in, in Richmond 7th District.
0: Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much for Thank coming so in. Much. Thank you for joining us and good luck in your race.
5: Thank you so much.
0: Election time. Woo-hoo. Election time.
3: Time
0: to vote again. Man, time to vote again. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania right here on WRARLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Thank you so much to Gary Broderick, Cheryl Burke and Bryce Robertson for joining us today and telling us why you, 7th District, should vote for them. Don't forget that November 6th is a very important election day. I know it's midterms, but come on, y'all. Everybody get out and vote. If you aren't registered, do it now. You don't have much time. Every vote counts, especially in local elections and especially this year. Vote, vote, vote. I cannot say it strongly enough. Another thing I'd like to say, since Fran didn't get a chance to end our episode like she normally does, Flint still doesn't have clean water. Richmond City Public Schools, still not fully funded. Richmond is still racist. Yeah, it is. If you want to talk to us about these candidates or another topic, municipal government related, hit us up across all social media at RVA Dirt. And until next time, stay classy, Richmond, and stay involved.